0: Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. This guy always makes us think, presents these situations, and a lot of them have morality attached ethics. Well, of course, because he is somebody who is has studied and dealt with and taught business ethics for years as a adjunct professor of business ethics, senior researcher, and so much more and he's also our diamond of the decade here. And he's back with us. Ronald Birnbaum joins us on the
1: program. Welcome back, Ronald. We've talked about ethical duties uh, and ethical principles, but we now, I, I want to broaden the conversation a bit, the question to whom they are owed and for what. And uh There is, uh, so we'll have our usual frame, the Kohlberg frame, which uh, starts on the left for all intents and purposes with Benthamite utilitarianism and on the far left, ethical egoism. And Bentham was the greatest good for the greatest number. And sometimes the greatest number is just me. That's all the way on the left. And uh, that's known as ethical egoism. Then we move on a continuum to uh, ethical principles and mandates. And they can be legal or they can be uh, even biblical uh, Mm -hmm. if you are the Speaker of the House. But uh, they have to be resolved sometimes because they conflict Uh, And so uh, that's basically its origin is Kantian and uh, the universal law, universal principles that apply at all times or should apply at all times in this uh, this situation. Then we deal with the uh, issue, uh, uh, the sub issue of uh, of uh, the question uh, to whom the duty is owed and under what circumstances. There's three levels in the development of these principles. At the top level is uh, no conventional principles, in in which case it's law of jungle. Basically, you decide based based on your own instincts. And uh, that's that's one side. That's the uh, ethical egoism side. And on the other side, uh, there may be some principles, there may be some laws or, or whatever. Uh, but ba- and basically, innately, you have to judge, you want to be ethical, at least, you don't want to be totally self-interested. So you want to go through this in your own mind. Then the second tier is the pre-conventional. And that is where you know you want to make a nice appearance, at least you want to look like you're doing the right thing, you want to get the reputation for doing the right thing. Uh, so in that case, uh, on the far left, again, we have the intuitive, and we move from the intuitive to the mandated, and then finally, on the third tier, uh, we have a situation uh, where the greatest good for the greatest number really needs to be, uh, shown, uh, you, after you, you feel obligated either legally or morally to develop a rationale for that. And, uh, the best recent example I have of this is the so-called, uh, supply side economics, where, uh, by lowering taxes, you can actually increase taxes. Now, hmm. the rationale for this was that the uh, the owner of the corporation or the business concern would reinvest the money they saved from taxes and they would earn a far better return on it by investing in new products. And that would, in turn, develop jobs, or they would expand their operation, which would develop jobs, and the people they employed uh, would uh, pay uh, income tax. That's Mm. uh, an extremely debatable proposition, at least in the way it's worked out uh, since uh, the uh, 40 years or so since the economist Arthur Laffer drew it on a napkin and uh i don't know what he did with a napkin thereafter it may be in the smithsonian institution or maybe it wound up in the uh in the waste box of the coffee shop where he was uh
0: but you're right that one comes up all the time all the time still does and why have we not had a definitive answer on that what do you think
1: well we have uh we have a definitive answer that it does not work in certain situations because the uh, the uh, company has simply used the money to pay uh, its uh, top executives higher and higher salaries. It's used the money to buy back its own stock, which has increased the value of the stock. And that has happened in, mm-hmm. uh, I dare say, probably more often than not but uh, I, I can't be certain of it. Now, when they uh, reinvest in new products and services and hire new people, then it's possible, uh, but it's, it's kind of hard to do the math on that one. So that was uh, the sort of pre-conventional, if you want to call it, uh, in the Kohlberg's uh, schema uh, morality, and on the, on the right side were the ethical principles, and they were equally motivated by self-interest in, in, a, in their own way. A uh, company develops a, reputa- a good reputation, and that enhances the sale of its products, and uh, its people are honorable, and all in all, and so on, and so on, and that it can only redound to the benefit of the company. So then we get to the third where, you know, the conventions are uh, well-established uh, supply side, still has its defenders as the greatest good for the greatest number. And on the right side, we have two different things. Uh, the uh, the, great, uh, the uh, universal law, uh, we have various conventions like the OECD and the UN Principles for Responsible uh, Management Education and uh, a committee on which I have served as a co-facilitator, where these uh, principles are enunciated. And uh, large numbers of companies that operate on a global scale, because we're now talking globally in most cases, uh, they feel it's beneficial to adhere to these principles and participate in uh, their formulation. Uh, but uh, the universal law is not a static proposition. People have to subscribe to it. People have to be seen as uh, complying with it, and those who do not have to be seen as being... Uh, punished in one way or another for not doing so. And that has happened, as we Mm -hmm. know. So uh, anyway, and sometimes this is called the fiduciary relationship, uh, this corner which is based on law. And uh, that is not just an ordinary commercial relationship, that is an obligation of trust where uh, loyalties cannot be seen uh, cannot cannot conflict, and we don't even know uh, what these confic- conflicting loyalties may be. Into that, and to explain that, uh, many law and ethics professors have used the following example, P, and the P stands for principal, the person in this case who owns a racehorse, and he hires A, that would be an agent, as a jockey to ride that horse for him uh, in, a, uh, in a race in a race. And during the course prior to that race, uh, the A is approached by T, which stands for third party. And the third party said, you know, I've seen you in the paddock. I've seen you run that horse in practice. I bet a huge amount on that, and I will give you $5,000 if you win the race. And so A says, fine. A runs the race and wins it, uh, but he never tells P about the second arrangement. By the way, I think I forgot to mention that P is only paying him $500. Hmm. So uh, afterwards, everybody seems to be happy. Uh, P gets uh, the, uh, uh, you know, P's horse wins. A gets paid, not by one uh, third party, but by two. Not by uh, not by his principle, not just by his principle, but also by T. And so, what could possibly be wrong with that? What is wrong with that is that uh, P has that the agent A owns owes exclusive loyalty, exclusive to P. Now, if he had asked P and P had said, that's okay with me, fine. Uh, Why would P not have said that? And so we have multiple P's here, so to speak. Well, the reason why he would not have said that would be be because if in the last lap, uh, the agent who is an experienced jockey was maybe, you know, a couple of, legs behind the leader. And he he knew that if he whipped the horse harder, he could probably win. But he also knew that there was an appreciable risk to doing so, that the horse could be seriously injured and never run again, and that Uh, or even that he might have to be, as they say euphemistically, destroyed. But anyway, if he saw that and thought he could do that and won, he still has been a disloyal agent because he owed exclusive loyalty To his principal. Had he consulted with his principal and the principal said, okay, that's fine with me, do whatever you can to win, then of course the interests of the two principals are aligned and the agent can proceed with a clear conscience. So just to
0: Uh, recap here for just a moment, Ronald, the jockey, his compensation here, I think you said it was $500. Yes. And the royalty portion of that, can we just cl- clarify that? I want to make sure we have that clear.
1: Well, the the, the third party has offered him $5,000 if the jockey wins the race, because the third party has bet a large amount on that horse.
0: And how does the jockey benefit from that?
1: He gets, rather, he gets $5,000 from he the will. third party.
0: Okay, but in in the situation he's made the determination to not push the horse uh, for whatever reason, ethical reasons, humane reasons, um, he made that decision. Is that correct?
1: Uh well, I didn't say he made that decision. I said that's the decision he should have made because okay. an experienced jockey knows, That it may not be in. uh, I mean, it's up to the principal to decide what's his best interest. Maybe the principal figures out this horse. It's it's only got one win in it. Let him do everything he can to win. In which case, the interests of the two parties are aligned. Or the principal could have a unique attachment to this horse and feel that he's just coming along his best his best races are ahead of him and he would rather lose this race and live to play another day so but but the agent doesn't know because he hasn't asked him and he hasn't asked for his permission
0: wow uh challenging situation be and and this is we're using it in the jockey horse racing scenario but these Situations come up in business all the time, right?
1: Sure, they do. Yeah. Hmm. And
0: you were that jockey, what would you do?
1: Well, I like to think what I would do is that I would uh, do what my experience tells me to do, to go and not to urge the horse, you know, beyond what I've done so far and hope to win the race but if i didn't i would at least have the uh the uh, consolation if you want to call it that of knowing uh, that i had done the right thing, thing
0: so yeah to speak. and in terms of the the owner of the horse uh what's their what's their recourse on this because it's the the jockey that made the decision in the heat of the moment right
1: Yes, well the owner's uh the owner's remedies would be uh legal. First of all, he would get his $500 back for sure and uh the jockey could be liable for the resulting damages if the horse could never run again and the owner could mm. demonstrate uh through uh, various different evidentiary uh showings that the horse had a great future in front of him, but it was lost, uh, then uh, the jockey would be liable for additional damages.
0: Hmm. I want to go back to the, the plateaus, the three that you had mentioned earlier, and you mentioned intuition. And we didn't go into deeper depth on that, but when, when you say that, How do you mean that in relation to ethics and everything that we're talking about today?
1: Well, uh, you certainly have kind of a Jiminy Cricket inside of you and when confronted with these kinds of situations where you have an initial response that tells you what the right thing to do is. Now, Mm -hmm. Jiminy Cricket wasn't always right, Mm -hmm. and, and neither will you be. But at least if you make uh, an honest and sincere uh, attempt to, as they say, go with your gut, Yeah, uh, that, is, uh, that is one way of looking at it. But uh, chances are, if you go with your gut, uh, it is much more likely that you will think that the greatest good is your greatest good and not in the split second of time that you have to think about it, think about what the greatest good is to the rest of the world. A, A good example, an interesting example of that, at least to my way of thinking, though I don't know that people have looked at it in that way, is the popular new film Oppenheimer. Now, Oppenheimer thought the greatest good was to win the war. Uh, which at the time he agreed to supervise the Los Alamos project, Uh, the United States was at war with Germany. Uh, Germany, Germany, Germany. Okay, so what happens? They finally have the test after Germany has surrendered, but Japan is still in the game. So the big question becomes whether or not to use it on Japan. And Oppenheimer uh, becomes concerned if we actually do use it, and this is against Japan, not Germany, just another country, not a really truly evil country uh, as Germany was and as Oppenheimer believed it to be, uh, then there'll just be a proliferation. Everybody will. It was easy enough for us to develop a bomb, and, you know, every country in the world will have the, one, and we'll see uh, explosions like this will finally wind up on page 32 of the newspaper. Uh, so he became against further development of the bomb. Once he saw what it can do, could do, and when he saw that Germany was no longer in the war, and of course, he was uh, ultimately, his security clearance was revoked. And uh, he wound up with the, uh, you know, unspeakable uh, and disagreeable situation of being a professor at Princeton for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. But uh, some people have to make choices that involve greater sacrifices than that
0: i want to go back just very briefly about what you said in terms of going with your gut, because you and i are on the same page by far with that and it is I, i believe we have intuition we and we know the right answer when we talk about ethics we all know the right answer sometimes it gets clouded sometimes we're so busy that we can't listen to within or sometimes the right answer just seems so easy that we look at it and say it can't be it can't be that easy let me look for something uh, more challenging um but the one thing you did say that really stood out for me is that doing the right thing and i always say do the right thing but not just for yourself for the greater good it's it's one thing to say well i'm gonna do the right thing that's the right thing to do. Um, it might not support others, so it's kind of a, a balance there. But maybe this is what our ethics comes in, uh, in terms of ourselves looking for the right answer uh, and
1: and doing uh, the right. Another answer. another thing to say, I think, at this point, and I agree with everything you said, is uh, the greater good is not the greatest good. There is no mm-hmm. such thing uh whatever choice oppenheimer makes whatever choice any of us are confronted with uh the issue is not going to permanently solve the problem for all time and for every situation so you have to ask not just only what is the greater good but which of these is going to make the world a better place even if it's only slightly better. Mm. And I guess you have to give American policymakers, uh, whether they proceeded out of ignorance or knowledge, uh, when they decided whether or not to drop the two bombs on Japan, or whether it was just a lucky outcome, Mm. that the greater good in a way was served by it because People uh, became aware of what kind of harm it did. So while they developed these weapons in vastly greater power and uh, range than the original one, uh, they nonetheless used them as deterrents. And those deterrents were successful in have been for, uh, you know, almost 70 years and they're ever being used
0: well there's one thing that does underline all of this there's always a choice we all have choice in everything what are you going to do in the next five seconds five days five months five years we all have a choice um and i guess when it comes to ethics or i know when it comes to ethics we have to think about that choice whether it is for the greater good uh, fascinating. Looking at uh, everything today, and and, and going deeper <laughs> in terms of the uh, the situation and scenario, Ronald. How do we? Uh, if somebody wants to uh, even talk a little bit more about uh, everything today, how do we reach you? How do we um, how do we connect?
1: Sure. It's Ronald dot Berenbein, That's B E R E N B E I M at Gmail dot com.
0: Got it. I'm going to throw out there, too. uh, For the future, if you have a comment or even a question uh, or even a scenario that you'd like uh, Ronald to uh, address, you can always reach us at instantfeedbacksteve at gmail.com, and uh, we'll get that done. Ronald, thank you so much for being with us again today.
1: Thank you. Good to see you again.
0: You too. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. Adopt US Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council.